What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. My guest today is renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht. Dr. Wecht is best known for his involvement in the assassination cases of President John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy. Wecht has also been a consultant on several high-profile cases, including John Bennett Ramsey, Sharon Tate, Daniel and Anna Nicole Smith, Elvis Presley, and O.J. Simpson. Enjoy the episode. To start off, this is such an honor to speak with you. I thought we could start with maybe talking a little bit about your father's grocery store growing up and kind of what, what was the greatest lesson that you learned from him? Um, well, um, you know, my parents had a mom-and-pop grocery store in uh, the Lower Hill District of Pennsylvania near downtown. A uh, large uh, percentage of people were immigrants, first generation, Italian, Irish, uh, Polish, uh, um, Jewish, and nearby uh, African-American um, community just so we call the Upper Hill. Uh, um, well, I think um, what I learned from my father, although I'm sure I did not fully appreciate it at the time, was uh, dedication, diligence, uh, hard work, uh, perseverance, the ability to uh, deal with uh, things uh, at times that would seem to be uh, somewhat uh, oppressive and harsh. And uh, to uh, have a goal, in my case, uh, my goal was told to me by my father, uh, I'm sure before I was even born in utero, that I was going to be a doctor, uh, and um, he pounded that into me, uh, so I never thought otherwise as I proceeded into college and applied to medical school. But um, taking away the... uh, personalization of uh, of that aspect uh, what I'm saying is that uh, it's, it's good to have a goal and my father came from Lithuania, my mother came from uh, um, what used to be Russia now, Ukraine, Kiev and no, uh, no money and no ability to speak English they worked hard and um, and did uh, everything uh, for me so uh, the the object lesson from that uh, for me is that people uh, should make up their minds. That doesn't mean you can't change it, but have an idea of what you want to do and set out to do it and be willing to work hard for it. Things aren't just going to be given to you. Uh, nothing was given to them. Uh, they worked very hard. And uh, finally, after being a huckster on the road and uh, selling old gold, as I recall, my father telling me uh, during the uh, Depression years, uh, finally you bought their first uh, mom and pop grocery store in the coal mining town near the West Virginia border and Green County, Pennsylvania, and um, then uh, <clears throat> proceeded to another store and, and so on. So that was the object lesson from both my father and my mother, and also to be kind and courteous and thoughtful and gracious and generous um, to the extent possible uh, in dealing with uh, people who um, were not uh, fortunate enough to have uh, much material wealth, who sometimes even had language problems. Um, That was all part of uh, what I grew up with. As I say, I, I cannot make myself believe that I understood and appreciated all of that during those uh, early uh, years and teen years as I grew older and 
became a young adult and then later on in middle age, getting married, having my own children, I, I began to reflect more upon all of that uh, as, as I have done. My wife, similarly, is born in Norway, was there for the first uh, for the years through Nazi occupation, and then uh, finally made her way here, uh, and we met in the United States Air Force. As a matter of fact, we were both stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base, one coming out of Vienna. And so she had a hard time uh, also. Her parents were divorced, and uh, she came here and had to make her way. Her mother helped her somewhat. Uh, she was a hardworking woman, uh, uh, a traveling masseuse, so to speak, uh, carrying that board on her back and a bus in Baltimore and going to people's homes. So, you know, that's the background. And you can learn from that uh, and, and benefit from it, uh, even though, as I said, you do not fully comprehend what it is that you're being taught. And for a lot of us, sometimes you can learn a lot on what not to do from your father as well. Well, that's right. That's right. Exactly. There's the the other side of the coin. You're right. So you're a man of many talents, including a background in music. What did you play? I played the violin. My father started that with me. I think I was about seven or eight years old. He wanted to more or less keep me off the streets, I guess. He never discussed it in, in those terms. But, again, later on I came to understand. It was, a, you know, it was a, a, a kind of a rough neighborhood, although in those years uh, there, was no, there were no drugs and nobody was stealing uh, cars or hubcaps or so on and people left their homes. But rough in the sense that uh, you, know, you had to know how to protect yourself and, and deal with it. Uh, um, and... And he just did not want me to be out on the streets when I came home from school. So, um, and he did like music, and he particularly liked the violin. The great violinist of that of that era were his favorites, and he began to take me to the Pittsburgh Symphony subscription every year, and we would go on Sunday afternoons. So, it became quite serious. I will tell you that by the time I was, uh, oh, I think. Uh, 11 or 12, I was taking uh, four lessons a week and practicing four hours a day, Monday through Friday, and six hours each Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and I became quite good. I was concert master at my high school, concert master at the University of Pittsburgh, um, all state uh, symphony orchestra. I performed uh, on stage for various groups, including. <laughs> Even the Carnegie Hall uh, in Pittsburgh, wow. uh, not 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 concerts uh, like a, but I mean organizations would have meetings and and functions, and they would so uh, some of them knew my talent, and I would play. It was a kind of a little musical interlude, but that's how good I was, and I played all the great violin concertos by memory, uh, Beethoven and Brahms and Bach, and uh, there's a five. Uh, <clears throat> Lalo Espanol has five segments, and I played all of those by memory. So, wow. uh, But I uh, I am always pained when someone asks me that uh, because I stupidly, stupidly uh, let it go. And there was no reason as busy as I became. And I was and I am extremely busy. There would always have been some time. Half an hour a day, 20 minutes a day, 
skip a day, an hour a day. There always would have been time. And I, I, I am very, very unhappy with myself for having let it go. I had good violin. In fact, I had three violins. My uh, wonderful violin teacher from Russia and France that left me her violin when she died. And Sister Grace Ann Geibel, who was president of Carlo University, we became very close friends. I established a, a program in forensic science there at Carlo, a Catholic, uh, well, it was co-ed, and I was, uh, I was all girls, and I was co-ed. And uh, Sister Grace Ann and I, she had a PhD, uh, and she left me her violin. So I had three uh, good violins, and I uh, gave two of them away. I sold one for a small price. And I don't even have a violin here if I wanted to try to get back into it, although I don't know that I would. You know, the violin is a difficult instrument, and not to uh, denigrate uh, other uh, <clears throat> instrument uh, uh, performances. Uh, but, you know, it's one thing. You sit down at the piano, uh, you learn the keys, and, you know, soon you can play a little uh, Frere Jacques or other childhood things uh, pick up a wind or a brass instrument and the violin, you know, just think about it. You're holding it with one hand, uh, out your left hand, you're holding it out there, your fingers are moving, and you got to go to the right spots on four strings from the bottom all the way up to the top toward the bridge. And, and then with the other right hand, you're bowing in simultaneous um, fashion. Really, I mean, it is heather, and that's why... Uh, so many kids dislike the violin. So many who started don't continue with it. This is a screeching, a horrible noise before you right. even begin something that sounds a, 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 a forget anything that is um, pleasant and musical. It's just something that doesn't have a screeching, harsh no noise. And that takes <laughs> weeks and months. Um, so anyway, that was my instrument, and uh, I miss it greatly. It sounds like you were very disciplined at an early age. Well, my father was responsible for that. I cannot say <laughs> that I would have done that on my own. Uh, and uh, my mother uh, was uh, just the most loving person in the world. And she wanted me to do all these things, too. But she was not the strict disciplinarian that my father was. Uh, she cut me a break here and there. For example, uh, I, I, I was always interested in, in athletics. I loved playing ball. And uh, um, my favorite sports uh, were uh, softball, as we called it. It was anything but soft. You're familiar with the 10 or 12 inch. They called it softball. It's hard as hard as a rock, but we called it softball. And okay. then uh, we had a mushroom, which were the outward seams that you used because we were playing on empty lots. And uh, somebody came up with that kind of a ball called a mush, mush ball um, that uh, could withstand that kind of – and I like football. So my father had no problems with me playing baseball or basketball, which I also did through high school. But he did not want me to play football. He, but he didn't know he didn't know one uniform from another. He athletics never uh, interested in. He never had an opportunity to do anything. Coming here uh, in his late teens uh, from Europe and so on. So my mother would <laughs> be washing my football clothes. <laughs> she knew what it was. My father. It never occurred to him that those were football challenges. <laughs> so how does it make you feel today when you look around and you see kids in the same neighborhood that you grew up on and, you know, maybe just staring at their phone all day and not out there, you know, 
building those bonds with, with friends and playing sports? That's a very, very good question, a wonderful observation. Um, we didn't have television when I grew up. You know, I'm 88 now, so I don't know what the year was of television, but obviously I was well out of my uh, my childhood and my uh, youthful uh, teens. Um, and, you know, we, we, we played. We played outside. We, we, we made uh, footballs out of rolled newspapers with rubber bands. We uh, would sneak in. There's a big hospital next to us, and we use their parking lot. Um, uh, and went up to Duquesne University, which is a few blocks away, and uh, a field up there until we got chased off. We did not have an athletic field, so we played outdoors. And 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 we we communicated with each other. You go to the next door neighbor or your good friend up the street. You say, "Hey Johnny, come on out. Let's throw the ball for a while. Let's play catch. Play catch." And you stand there with your baseball gloves that were big treats when you got to be twelve, thirteen. And you just uh, keep throwing the baseball back and forth uh, for uh, even an hour. Um, now, kids, um, not only kids, but adults, but we're talking about kids here. With these, I see it with my 11 grandchildren, some of whom are now uh, out of college, uh, but others still in high school. And these these uh, these cell phones and this, uh, this, this email, this Twitter and, and Twix and Google and and uh, all this stuff, I don't know. I, I, I'm remaining a dinosaur to a great extent. I'm in the. I'll, I'll do cell phone calls. Um, I can take a message uh, uh, finally on my uh, cell phone, but that's as far as it goes. I've got uh, three secretaries, and one of whom is my wife and attorney, and she runs the office, and two others. And uh, I'll either write things out, which they will then uh, type and send. Um, or I'll, um, I still write personal letters. I learned how to do writing. There's another thing nowadays, it's my understanding in many schools, they stopped uh, teaching cursive, um, so kids don't know how to write. Uh, uh, they just print. It's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> my son, and I, I, I guess I, I shouldn't be saying this, he's a Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice, my oldest son. He's a graduate um, a magna cum laude from Yale, and and Yale a Law Review, and now a State Supreme Court Justice. And uh, when he writes, he prints. He doesn't know how to write cursive. Um, now you, you've written many books. What advice would you have to someone, to an upcoming writer, about the importance of writing and rhetoric? Well, I think the first thing, obviously, is something that I know um, um, writers uh, before me, going back, I'm sure, centuries have said, and that is, uh, write about something that you know that you like. Um, and I, I, I know I've seen that many times. There's nothing original coming from me. But pick something that you either know, have familiarity with, or that you will be at ease with in, in researching. Um, writing now, I think, I guess it's so much easier with research. You know, in, in, in those years uh, when you wanted to write something, I remember in, in high school, in college, you're going to the library and at home uh, having the annual World Almanac and then going to the library. Nowadays, many schools don't have libraries of books. You, uh, As I understand it, uh, you just go there, and if you don't know how to do the computer, then you're out of luck, including uh, law schools. Uh, so anyway, um, and, and then be prepared uh, to uh, work at it in dedicated fashion. Every uh, writer has his/her own uh, agenda um, and rhythm, 
and I don't know that there's one better than the other. I've never been a full-time writer. I've never done to make a living. I started uh, I, I started to be an editor of a book um, in the, um, um, uh, I think, the mid-70s. Somebody came to me, and I did, uh, it was called Legal Medicine Annual. I would get uh, chapters from famous people in law, medicine, forensic science, and I would edit and uh, write uh, introductions for each of those chapters. I did that uh, for, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years. In fact, I know I started in the early 70s. And um, then um, my next big venture was a five-volume set, which is still uh, being published with semi-annual supplements called Forensic Science. And it's a, a huge um, um, compendium of wonderful chapters. You, you, you name the area of forensic science, we've got it covered. You name the area of civil or criminal law, it touches upon medicine, we've got it covered. Forensic meteorology, uh, uh, forensic uh, linguistics, let alone, you know, all the more traditional, well-known ones of pathology, psychiatry, toxicology, criminalistics, um, anthropology, uh, entomology, uh, and nursing, and so on. But And then I thought about doing a book dealing with cases that I had uh, become involved with, came cases of uh, famous uh, nature, controversial uh, nature, and that led to my first book in about 1993, Cause of Death, which has just been republished. So I have eight books out there now, um, two of which were uh, unavailable uh, for many years, and now both republished Cause of Death, which deals with JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, um, and, and many others, and then Grave Secrets, the second book, and then uh, Tales from the Morgue, um, from crime scene to courtroom, a question of murder, um, and um, a couple of others I've forgotten, the latest of which is Final Exams. So these books uh, are all available, and they contain cases, all real cases that I have dealt with uh, from John F. Kennedy up to uh, recent famous cases like uh, Rebecca Zeha, the woman found hanging nude from the balcony of her multimillionaire boyfriend's home in San Diego, which the authorities out there chose to call a suicide. Uh, it's going to be a program, by the way, uh, uh, tonight, uh, Sunday night, um, another separate program tomorrow, Monday. I am, no, I, I mean, tonight, uh, Monday, the 27th, and uh, tomorrow um, on that uh, case. Uh, and then through the years, O.J. Simpson and John Benet Ramsey and um, um, Waco Branch Davidian uh, Fire, uh, Chandra Levy, Elvis Presley, um, uh, Tammy uh, Wynette, uh, um, uh, Michael Jackson, uh, um, all of these cases that I've been involved with uh, in one fashion or another with the families, with the attorneys, uh, with national news media. Uh, these are portrayed, uh, five, six, seven of them, in each of the books, um, and um, I'm very proud of that. I've had co-authors who have worked hard with me uh, in producing those books. And, that sounds uh, incredible. Uh, Dr. Well, Weck, which, which case would you say, you've had a wild ride, which case would you say was the most challenging and shocking for you? Well, I would say, uh, obviously, it has to be John F. Kennedy. Why? Because, number one, that's the most important it involves our president, number two. Uh, the official answer, namely the Warren Commission report, is utter nonsense. If it involved a case uh, 
of uh, you or me or our next door neighbor or the guys we work with or whatever, uh, it, it would have been laughed out of court if it even made its way to the court. You just analyze that case on a forensic scientific basis, and uh, if it weren't so serious, you would die laughing. Um, and because of the cover-up then, you know, it wasn't, uh, as I always say, they soon discovered in a matter of hours, it wasn't the Russians, it wasn't the Chinese, and it wasn't the Cubans. It was us. We met the enemy, and he is us. Um, it was uh, the overthrow of the government by the killing of its leader, and that's called anywhere else when it happens in the world, coup d'etat, the overthrow of the government. That's what happened in America. And that right. case remains. I'm deeply involved. I'm chairman of the National Group uh, Committee Against Political Assassinations, CAPA, the acronym. And we have an annual program this year, Dallas, every year there, uh, commemorating the anniversary. This year, the actual date of Friday, November 22nd, falls on a Friday uh, this year, November 22nd. Our program is two days. Anybody's interested in that, they can Google um, CAPA or get in touch with me through you and to get information. So I remain deeply involved. I'm, I think, the only, um, I am the only a non-government person who has testified three times under oath. I testified um, before the uh, um, before a uh, federal judge in 1969 when I was consulted by Jim Garrison um, in the Clay Shaw case, trying to get access to the autopsy materials. I testified before that federal judge in Washington, D.C., um, to explain why it was necessary to have the autopsy report. Then I testified before the Rockefeller Commission uh, about five hours in 1974, and then I testified before the uh, House of House of Representatives, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, in 1979 in Washington D.C. as a member of the Forensic Pathology Panel. I gave a minority report. My eight uh, colleagues, all uh, distinguished, respected, experienced forensic pathologists, uh, they had criticisms galore of the Warren Commission report, the autopsy, mm -hmm. et cetera. But somehow they found that, that the Warren Commission had come up with the right conclusion. Everything was wrong, but somehow they came to the right conclusion. So Most I of us couldn't imagine taking on that amount of pressure. Did you have <laughs> doubts about taking on the assassination of President Kennedy? Well, I, you know, I must tell you, when I got started, I gave my paper at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences in February of 1965. I got started in the fall a few months before when I was invited by the program chair um, to speak from the forensic pathology standpoint about the Warren Commission report at the plenary session of the annual meeting of the academy. And I did that. And that started it. I had no idea what was going to happen. And, and uh, following that presentation in late February 65, oh, my God, then people who were heavily involved, including Mark Lane, uh, one of the, the earliest outstanding uh, critics, um, um, uh, who wrote the magnificent book, Rush to Judgment. And then it just kept on moving and flowing um, from one um, entity to another, one national um, TV radio station to another. And then, as I said, consulted by uh, um, um, Jim Garrison later on down the road and um, testifying there and, and continuing on, I was the one that discovered that the president's brain is missing. It, uh, it, we don't have time to get into the details. Suffice it to say that all the autopsy materials were inexplicably, absurdly, uh, ridiculously, uh, without any legal precedent, 
determined to be the property of Jacqueline Kennedy, who, of course, never saw any of that, never wished to possess it at all. But they said it was hers so that she, they could get back a, a, a gift, so to speak, um, a, 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 a fake gift on paper, um, never left their custody in the first place. And then they made, a, they made an inventory of all that stuff. And they had everything listed, including the large tin box containing the brain. So I was the first non-government sponsored, non-government affiliated forensic pathologist given access to those materials in August of 1972, first one. Um, and I pointed out at that time uh, that the president's brain was missing and it remains missing now uh, all these years, what, 18 and 19, that's uh, uh, 37 years later, the president's brain remains missing and unaccounted for. And wow. the answer is very simple because the brain was properly fixed in formalin, which is what you do with a brain that's been damaged by gunshots, and you let it fix so it gets a harder consistency, permitting you to make parallel sections, and then you just lay them out like you would a hard-boiled egg and go from one section to another. They, they, they did not do that. They fixed the brain, went back two weeks later, and look at the autopsy report, and it says the brain is not further dissected at this time in order to preserve the specimen. Preserve the specimen? This is a damn murder investigation. What are you talking about, preserve the specimen? Preserve it for whom? Placed on somebody's mantelpiece? They do, because you, once you dissect the brain, you'll see that there are two trajectories. Two shots struck him in the head simultaneously, uh, a fraction of a second apart from each other. That's what they would have seen, and that's why that brain was never sectioned. I mean, it, all yeah. this is, is it's, it's all there. Anybody that's the least bit interested, it's all there. Uh, yeah, I recommend everyone go on YouTube and yeah. find your talk about yeah. the single bullet theory. Yeah, yeah, the single bullet theory. I love to demonstrate that when I make a presentation. I get people from the audience, bring them up, put them in chairs, uh, pretending to be the president and Governor Jared Conley, and I show uh, the way in which the magic bullet, as we called it, the hero of the single bullet theory, would have had to have moved in midair, uh, making horizontal and vertical gyrations in order to go from one person to the other producing seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley, emerging near pristine with a weight loss of only 1.5%, despite having broken two large bones in Governor John Conley, a big bone, six foot four Texan. Despite all of that, the bullet emerged intact, pristine, with a weight loss of only 1.5%, the magic mm -hmm. bullet. Yeah. <laughs> Switching gears here, what kind of impact does performing 17,000 autopsies? 20,000, 20,000. 20,000, uh, yeah. sorry. Uh, yeah. i got to get my secretary to update uh, that, uh, whatever is out there on Facebook. I've done about 20,000, and I've reviewed, signed off, supervised about 40,000 others. And this goes back to 1957 when I started my residency in pathology at the University VA Hospital. So through five years of training, Ending in 62, including two years as a captain in the Air Force, uh, Maxwell Air Force Base Hospital, associate pathologist, and then associate pathologist, research fellow in forensic pathology at the office of the chief medical examiner of Maryland in Baltimore. So then I started my practice in um, 1962. Um, but going back to 57 to the present time, so you're talking about uh, 60, um, 62 years. Um, uh, that's that's what I've done. Um, how does it feel? Well, <laughs> um, you know, what kind you know, of what kind of impact has it had, or does that have on a man's psyche? Well, I, I don't know. It's a good question. People often ask me that in various ways. Uh, 
how do you feel about it? What do you think about it? Dealing with dead bodies, um, the visualization, um, the uh, the sense of smell as well as sight, and, and, and so on. Um, it's, it's hard to say. It is not that forensic pathologists become callous, insensitive, and um, uncaring. No, and especially uh, you know, you see uh, a teenager, you see a child, and so on. It's heartbreaking, and it continues to be. And you, I, you know, never cease to think of any decedent as a an individual. What he or she uh, must have been, what they what they had done, what they would have done, and uh, and what all their relatives and friends are thinking. However, you know, um, the other part of the answer is what you're doing is so important. If you did not have good medical legal investigation, if you did not have good forensic pathology, where would you be in courts of law? Not only in the criminal cases of um, murder, uh, first, second, third degree, manslaughter from first to sub-third, and motor vehicular, uh, and, and so on, but um, then uh, other cases that don't necessarily involve death, uh, rape and sexual assault, uh, infant, uh, child, adult, spousal, elderly abuse, we deal with all of that. And then on the civil side, medical malpractice, product liability, um, personal injury, uh, wrongful death, um, uh, suicide versus accident, uh, uh, insurance policies, and so on. Where would you be? So what you're doing is so so important. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to work with law enforcement, civil and criminal attorneys, judges, um, families, public health agencies, academic institutions. Think about that. Uh, who else has that opportunity? And as far as uh, whether it's unpleasant or not, you know, I don't mean uh, to be uh, jocular uh, or or sarcastic about this, but think of uh, the colorectal surgeon, the proctologist, the gynecologist, for that matter. Think of the ear, nose, and throat uh, person, the otorhinolaryngologist, looking in people's ears and in their mouths and in their noses. Really, I mean, so you know, you say, "Oh my God, how do you deal with it?" Well, at least you got a whole body. Usually, most of the time, and right. you're dealing with the body. I would not like to be in one of those other specialties, just looking in one orifice, whatever that body orifice might be. That would not be something that I would be the least bit interested in. See, as a firefighter, paramedic, we see a lot of the same stuff. How yeah, has sure. your relationship changed with death, seeing it for years, you know, firsthand? Well, it hasn't really changed for all the reasons that I've just said. Uh, you deal with it, um, but you recognize the importance of what you're doing, and that is extremely critical that you always keep that in mind. Uh, the moment that you forget that is the moment that you, you know, maybe you miss something. You've got to be careful not to start off a case uh, with a fixed uh, conclusion. You've got to be careful. Sometimes uh, police officers, not intending in a conspiratorial fashion to lead you astray, but just, you know, uttering their thoughts, Doc, we, we know that SOB husband did it, you know, or something, you know how it is. Um, uh, uh, so you got to be careful about that, too. And then, as a forensic scientist, you got to recognize the difference between you as a forensic scientist dealing with matters objectively and uh, the homicide detective or the uh, other police officers. And what they're doing is very important, very important. And you as a firefighter recognize that fully. But what I'm saying is they 
uh, have a different uh, modus operandi, a different modus vivendi. Um, you um, are not an arm of the prosecution. Uh, you are uh, an objective scientist, and you're dealing with things in an objective, open-minded fashion. And that's uh, important. I've been saying that for a long time. The American Academy of Forensic Sciences, the National, the National uh, Institute of Sciences, National Academy of Sciences, put out a paper in, uh, in February 1979, National Academy of Sciences, February 1979, um, saying uh, these things that I've just uttered about the need uh, for medical examiners, uh, forensic scientific investigators, etc., cetera, uh, to not be um, under the aegis, um, not to be considered as a part of the prosecutorial team, but rather to be an objective a group and facility uh, dealing with forensic science. Um, for you as a forensic fighter, I got to tell you, I have always had a strong uh, feeling about firefighters. They have been, when I was involved politically here, running for coroner, county commissioner. Uh, I ran uh, unsuccessfully for U.S. Senate. Uh, among my, my chief supporters from day one were the firefighters because uh, I always uh, felt so good about testifying in those cases where a firefighter had died um, during or sometime following a fire, and it was a question of whether or not uh, the exposure and the increased endeavors, the uh, greater demands on the cardiovascular system led to the death. And then that played out, too, in the 9-11 explosions. Um, I was a member of a national committee um, that um, reviewed a plan that had been set up uh, for people who were first responders in terms of evaluating their claims. And uh, what I saw was something that was quite unacceptable. It was too rigid, it was too limited, um, and it would have cut out a lot of people uh, whose signs and symptoms did not uh, present themselves immediately. And I succeeded along with others in having that change considerably. I was very, very proud of that. Uh, to have accomplished that, to allow uh, first responders to have a much more liberal approach, a, a legal one, but a more liberal one, in understanding the way things work in terms of the stress, the physiological, the psychological stress that plays out and the pathological processes that it can lead to, that it can enhance, that it can initiate uh, and aggravate. Uh, those are important things to keep in mind when you're talking about uh, first responders and the tremendous stress that firefighters have. Well, the fire service can't thank you enough for doing that. Now, switching gears here, in the 60s, Americans had among the highest life expectancy in the world. Today, we rank near the bottom of major developed nations. In your opinion, what is the rise in this U.S. mortality rate a symptom of? Well, um, there, there, there are two uh, major components to that. Um, um, the, the life expectancy... The chronological age has dropped, I think, mostly because of the large number of drug deaths. And these involve then the teenagers and the people in their 20s and 30s and even people in their 50s and 60s because I think life expectancy uh, um, had gone up to, uh, I, I believe it was in the high 70s for men and, and maybe around 80, 81 for women and so on. And it has dropped, as you pointed out correctly, uh, a couple of years, largely due to that. The other uh, 
component uh, of an answer to your observation is that uh, there's increased stress uh, with our society today. Um, there's no question about it. The national program that I had the good fortune to be on that was uh, produced, narrated, and, or, and uh, put together by Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is himself a neurosurgeon and a magnificent uh, human being in every respect, and the medical editor, I think, for CNN. Uh, we've known each other for many years, and uh, Sanjay invited me and interviewed me at great length. If you're not, if you're not familiar with that program, you and your listeners should be, I think it's called uh, Our Country uh, Under Stress. A Nation Under Stress, I believe. Uh, is that <laughs> nation? Yes, sir. Okay. You, you yeah, every, that's a must-watch. Yeah. yeah, it absolutely is a must and now, you did. Of, I read that you did over 500 autopsies last year, and more than 300 of those were drug deaths. Well, that's right. In, 19, in 2017, 2017 was my peak year. did 576 in 2017. More than 300 were drug deaths. In 2018, I did about 485, and I would say uh, more than 250 were drug deaths. This year, um, we're on pace to do, again, about 500. And the same thing um, with drug deaths. Um, so these drug deaths um, are significant. As uh, Dr. Gupta pointed out in his program, uh, suicide rates have increased, uh, cardiovascular problems and so on. There's no question. When I think back uh, uh, our discussion when we began your program today and comments about my childhood, um, although people, um, you know, socioeconomically were and not in very good shape, and, and uh, as I said, the immigrants are first generation, uh, there were not the kinds of stressful things that exist today. And, and it was much more pleasant and relaxed. Uh, as I say, you walk on the streets. Uh, we walked many blocks up into what was called the Hill District to play basketball on Sunday nights. Uh, no parents were concerned about us walking into what today would be a no-no uh, walking into some of those neighborhoods um, by yourself. Um, so all of that stress and the relaxation. You know, today, you know, I have nice relationships with our neighbors, but, you know, we don't see them much in the old days <laughs> before television and so on. And um, from April into October, November, uh, people sat on benches in front of their homes uh, or little porches and talked, and they – they visited with each other <laughs> while the kids were playing down the street. Um, you know, it sounds silly in a way, but it's not. I mean, you play this out uh, by the thousands, by the uh, millions and tens of millions and so on, you begin to see how this does play out. So to think that here we are and compare this, uh, you are familiar because you refer to it now with these um, tables. For instance, I mentioned my wife is from Norway. I think Norway... Um, is number one or and number two in terms of the comfort level of people and how they like themselves and how relaxed they are and so on. And uh, other countries like that, Sweden and Denmark, and even, you know, countries uh, like where many of our ancestors came from, uh, England and Italy and Poland and France. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so... And the, the, the fact that we have this tremendous stress here in America is something that really needs to be addressed. And I, I, I don't have a simple answer. I don't have a simple answer. And I think that the more 
people become technologically involved, the more uh, self-cloistered and sequestrated, uh, self-sequestrated they become, uh, probably uh, unwittingly, uh, the more stressful they become. They don't have an opportunity to just relax and enjoy. They're, they're too busy with their computers and their phones and, and all of that stuff. People don't even know how to talk to each other. People don't even know how to use a telephone anymore. Um, people don't, uh, some people, they don't even want to use a cell phone anymore. If you don't, if you don't uh, email them then, then forget about it. You'll, you'll not reach them. So this is all part of the situation today. Um, our, uh, our our nation, uh, our, was our nation under stress or in stress? Was uh, what's the name of that program? Yeah, nation under stress. A nation under stress. Yeah. So recommend that. And it's been about an hour and ten minutes. A fantastic program. And um, as I say, just you know, we we have in many respects the the greatest nation and some of the most wonderful things. But to think, as you've pointed out, that our life expectancy is is lower. Um, that uh, we still have uh, many people who are impoverished. Uh, we still have uh, things that are not being addressed. We still haven't learned how to have long-term facilities that are good and nice for everybody uh, so that you don't have to be wealthy to have uh, good nurses around to change your diapers. I have a former secretary who just went into a facility and uh, has been telling me, Four hours she waited after pushing the button to have her diapers uh, changed, disposable diapers, as she's in that kind of state of health. Four hours in a, in a pretty high-paid facility. I mean, this is this is unacceptable, unacceptable. We have a 10, 20, 25, 35, 50 million to pay to a ball player, uh, to an entertainer, and I don't begrudge. I'm not jealous of anybody. Fine, but a nation that can afford that. And look, I think it was in yesterday's New York Times or the day before, um, a listing of uh, the wealthiest uh, people, um, the money that they make, and so on. Um, you know, I, I'm not. A, I mean, I'm, I'm all for capitalism, um, but capitalism should be able to address these matters. Uh, we don't need socialism, um, and, but we do need an enlightened capitalism, and which will be good for everybody, um, and even deal with the the uh, uh, touchstone that led to this discussion about uh, life expectancy in America and the fact that with all of our gains technologically and in the field of medicine, that our life expectancy has lowered rather than increased. Yeah, there's no doubt that we need to get to the root cause and, and these deaths from despair, as you say, yeah, what is, yep. you know, the mental health is on the rise, although we live in one of the most incredible times in history. Yeah, yeah, mental health is on the rise. In the meantime, here in Pittsburgh, Allegheny County, um, three large mental hospitals were closed years ago. I uh, did work at uh, two of them, um, and there's a pathologist on call and, and so on. So um, they decided after the advent of the um, – benzodiazepines, the tranquilizers, and the first one was called Miltown, Equinil, and now you've got all of these benzos out there, uh, and Valium and and, uh, and uh, hundreds of others that are contributing to the drug deaths, although heroin and fentanyl lead the, lead the hit parade. But um, they, they came to decide uh, 10, 15, 20 years later that, hey, you know what? We don't need mental hospitals anymore. And so 
A lot of these people, you'll find them in jails, you'll find them on the streets in big cities, uh, you'll find them living uh, under this shelter or that shelter. Um, there are people that need uh, help, they need uh, care. Um, and I don't know uh, your community, check it out, but I'm telling you, uh, Mayview, Dixmont, and uh, um, um, I forget the other one, uh, Fairview, uh, they come to Mama. Here in Allegheny County, they're they're gone. They've been gone for 20, 30 years, just like that. Now, how is that possible? Did everybody get better? Everybody overnight became better? <laughs> right. Fascinating just to think about it. Yeah. yeah. Conventional well, medicine and their pills and procedures are uh, kind of getting us away from root cause resolution. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Dr. Weck, you're one of the most interesting men. You know, you're undeniably brave and, and dignified. For you, who comes to mind when you hear the term virtuous? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've known virtuous people in my life as you have. Um, and, um, you know, I, just people here and there, uh, some school teachers, uh, some neighbors, uh, some friends. Uh, and, of course, there are some people at the national and international level that have been wonderful, uh, too, Um I guess I guess it's hard to be virtuous. Um, it's good to be, um, you know, dignified and um, to make contributions to society as best you can in whatever way you can. Some mm-hmm. people can do it uh, in a philanthropic way. Other people do it uh, with community service. Other people do it uh, by lending their talents uh, and so on. So, you know, there are different ways. I wish that more of the multi-millionaire athletes and entertainers would make contributions like some of them do, uh, huge amounts uh, for schools here or there, um, like the, the billionaire gentleman did uh, speaking at uh, Morehouse University and said, saying that he would pick up the student loans for the entire graduating class and so on. Um, I mean, um, to be more more generous, um, I think that... Um, 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 what's his name? Uh, uh, Gates uh, um, is uh, such a person, um, and you know, to, to make contributions um, in different ways, uh, start up little groups uh, for kids uh, in 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 the early years, uh, give them an opportunity in neighborhoods that are socioeconomically down. It's got to start then, and then educational programs uh, and so on. So there are many ways. I, I thank you very much for your gracious personal comments. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I want to commend you for the work that you do as a firefighter. Uh, you guys are putting your lives in danger uh, literally uh, every time. Just the idea of uh, you know going into burning buildings and dealing with smoke and carbon monoxide. And well, thank you, Dr. Weck. It's been a so, privilege speaking with you today. Um, you know, I hope you never pay for another drink wherever you go. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. And Thank uh, you. I look forward to your podcast, and maybe we'll talk again sometime, okay? Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.